Hey, are you ready to get stuck in the 80s with us for a week at sea? The 80s Cruise returns March 5th through 12th, 2022 on the Royal Caribbean Mariner of the Seas. The 2022 lineup includes, are you ready for this? I don't think you're ready for this, but here it comes anyway. The Human League, 38 Special, ABC, Berlin, Morris Day and the Time, Belinda Carlisle, Dire Straits Legacy, John Parr, Modern English, Jack Russell's Great White, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, A Flock of Seagulls, The Alarm, The Sugar Hill Gang, John Parr, Johnny Hates Jazz, and Jesse's Girl, our favorite 80s tribute band from New York City. Brad and I will be there hosting trivia, recording live podcasts, and generally making fools of ourselves. Come be a fool with us. You could score some nice cabin credit if you book the 80s cruise using the promo code STUCK. Don't wait until the last minute to book. The voyage is going to sell out soon. Go to www.the80scruise.com to learn more. Now on with the show. Travel back in time to the 80s. Reliving the music. You can't have the Pretender's first album. That's mine. I bought it. You did not. The catchphrases. Did you have a brain tumor for breakfast? And the wannabes. Sometimes I see you dance around the house in my underwear. Doesn't make me a Madonna. Never will. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears. And Brad in L.A. And today we honor five albums that are celebrating their 40th anniversary. Everybody's talking about the new sound. Funny, but it's still rock and roll to me. Stuck in the 80s is now listener-supported via Patreon. Join us for VIP Zoom happy hours and more when you join at patreon.com slash stuckinthe80spodcast. Should I get a set of white wall tires? Are you going to cruise the Miracle Mile? Hey everyone, normally every year Brad and I take the time to research our topics thoroughly. We have a summit of sorts where we take copious notes about all the plans that we have for the podcast in the coming year. You know, all the diverse topics we're going to talk about anywhere from crazy songs to crazy cover songs to crazy stories. To just craziness. Crazy, insane. Insane? Crazy? We take all those ideas, we put them in a three-ring binder with laminated sheets, and then I put that binder in a fire pit in my backyard, and we light it on fire. Yes, that's exactly what happens. It's like choosing a pope. Then that's the reason why we're sitting here with mere weeks left in the year, and we have yet to honor any albums that turned 40 in 2020. Are you sure it isn't time for a colorful metaphor? Oh, I think some of it is just my reluctance to call it albums turning 40 because while we've been doing the prep for this the last couple of weeks, I've I've called it albums turning 30 every time. And Steve's like, are we really doing 1990 albums? I'm like, oh, oh fine. Yes, I'm old. They're old. Everybody's old. Fine. Thanks, Steve. Really needed that. When you grow up, your heart dies. Who cares? I, I was just going to say something along those lines, but in a much happier tone. But oh, fuck up, little camper. <laughs> That's it, though. I mean, that is the reason. I don't want to. I don't want to think of anything in my life as being 40, 40 years old. You know. Yeah. I can't do it. I can't wrap my mind around it. It's just. It's mind blowing, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. So here's what we did. Don't worry, folks. It gets worse, and then it gets better. 
I don't know if it gets any better. This might be the high water mark of 2020 right now. We might we're just like uh, Leo and Kate hanging on to a piece of wood, <laughs> floating in the uh, nostalgia ocean of time. It's cold. It's so cold. There was room for both of them. Anyway, here's what we did. We reached out to our patrons. We had a Zoom happy hour last weekend, and we, for an hour, we talked about what albums from 1980 should we give you know a special nod to, uh, a special podcast for. And we, we banted around a lot of albums. And some of the ones that we talked about that aren't going to make the list today, eh. uh, some of my favorites, Yeah. Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables by the Dead Kennedys. Mm. Just outside the, just, just missed the time cut off there. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen's The River, I, I thought might make the cut. It didn't. I think there was unanimous support that uh, Back in Black by ACDC had been covered enough and didn't need to be. <laughs> we don't need to talk about that anymore. Some people mentioned Joy Division and Closer. Yeah. Great album. Yeah. And then there was ones like uh, Talking Heads Remain in Light. And mm. the only reason we're not going to do that one today really is because we've, we've talked about the Talking Heads before in this series and we've we we talked in depth about previous albums and we talked in depth about uh their movie true stories so we just kind of you know you like let's, let's, away let's shine the light on some other things no no what happened he hates bright lights so what we've done is we picked five albums and hopefully we'll have some trivia and some perspective on them and we'll have a good time we'll play a we'll play a popular clip from each album we'll play maybe a little bit of a deeper cut and we'll have some fun and then we'll have some seggies and then we'll We'll make some uh, eggnog with some lighter fluid, and uh, everything will be copacetic. That sound mm, okay, Brad? I love it. <laughs> I don't like this idea of recording podcasts in the middle of the day. It, for some reason, it's it's thrown me off my game. I'm I'm in a mid energy level, and it doesn't usually make for good radio. I, I need to be either a little loopy or a little drunk, and I'm neither. It's a wonderful story, buddy. I've noticed you stopped stuttering. I've been giving myself shock treatments. Up the voltage. Let's get started. Brad, what's your first pick? I got to tell you, Steve, I was really tempted to go with 1980s seminal release Chipmunk Punk. But again, I feel like we've talked enough about that. So, nope. Yep, that's Girl You Want from Devo's third studio album, Freedom of Choice. Let's set the stage a bit. Shall we review, Steve? Sure. Devo's first two albums, not exactly big barnstorming money makers for Warner Brothers. And, you know, you know how the label is, right? I mean, come on. Oh, the label really wanted a hit from these guys. So they had issued an ultimatum to the band, basically saying, look, this third album better be something great or we're going to tear up your seven record deal and you can just, you'll see us in court. Fine. Also, you got to remember Devo had a lot of interest from well-known musicians. Uh, we discussed John Lennon on a recent show, but also David Bowie, Iggy pop, Neil Young were all fans. That wasn't getting them any radio play. Uh, Mark Mothersbaugh said, we never wrote radio songs. There was always something about it that programmers could sniff out that they were like, this is a little bit different. This is weird. Or this is something that's maybe making fun of us that I don't quite get. On the other hand, the record companies did their best to dull all that. They referred to us as quirky and wacky. In those terms, they meant we don't take it seriously. 
So these guys were kind of stuck in the middle of no man's land. Sure. The one hand and the other. This track, Girl You Want, was the track that Werner put all their promotional energy into. The inspiration for this song, at least for the title, is a Scottish religious pamphlet that Mark found while wandering around some city in in the UK on tour in the late 70s. The pamphlet had a cartoonish painting of a little girl with a bluebird sitting on her finger and the words, Just the Girl You Want. Hmm. The story inside the pamphlet, however, had nothing to do with the sexual frustration expressed in the lyrics, a feeling well known to many Devo fans, but instead it's about somebody advertising for a boy wanted to work in a store, and then the girl comes in and gets a job. Okay. Huh. So that's that's what the pamphlet's about. That's not what the song is about? The song is definitely okay. about okay. the aforementioned sexual frustration, yes. A common theme in music and life. So, Steve, I think I might have buried the lead here. You're the journalist, so you tell me. Did I bury the lead? I don't know what the lead is. Well, here's the Devo song you know, even if you can't spell Devo. Okay, Steve, pop quiz. Is Whip It about A, S&M, B, masturbation, C, all of the above, or D, none of the above? I'm, I'm going to go with D. That's correct, Steve. That's correct. I mean, look, if Diva wanted to do a song about S&M or masturbation, they wouldn't have bothered with some sort of indirection and innuendo. And these guys had recorded a song that included the lyrics, I need a chick to suck my d- they're not going to shy away from, you know, I last night. Jeez. I really should have drunk something before this show. I was not I know, prepared right? for this at all. It's a lot of, a lot of beeps in this one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The whip sounds, interestingly enough, were recorded in a long hallway between buildings at the record plant in L.A. where the album was recorded. Uh, I could tell you what model microphones were used, but... Who needs that kind of detail? I mean, this is a podcast, not a scholarly paper. So how did this song become such a juggernaut if Warner put all their eggs in the girl you want basket, Steve? Do you know this? This is actually a somewhat well-known uh, I'm story. I'm just going to guess it was because of the video in MTV. Uh, no, that was MTV didn't launch until the next year. Uh, curse you, timeline! An influential Florida radio programmer, Cal Rudman, put it in his music industry tip sheet, Friday Morning Quarterback. And really, he was really pushing it, and it just took off from there. Suddenly, it was getting airplay up and down the East Coast, and then it's in New York, and then it jumps coasts, and the next thing you know, Devo is in the middle of touring Freedom of Choice, and suddenly, venues were selling out like really quickly, and they started moving into bigger venues, and they're like, oh, this it's happening. This is great. Uh, I mean, did Devo ever have that kind of commercial success again? No, Steve. No, they did not. But it's nice to get there once, I think. Sure. It's more than we can say. Yeah, no kidding. And and some artists get tired of their biggest hits, but Devo doesn't seem to begrudge the song status. Uh, Jerry Casali has said, I'm glad it was Whip It because it's certainly twisted and original. Those are the hallmark of Devo, that you expect something different or witty or twisted, a little off. And it has all that. And it came from a good place. It came from a pure, creative, open collaboration. And that's, to me, when all the best stuff comes. 
I think I've told this story in the podcast before, but I have a story behind Girl You Want. You do? <laughs> yeah. Maybe it might have been pre Brad on the podcast, but back in high school when uh young Spearsy was just a freshman, our school used to have pepper alleys before every uh, before well, sure. like, every other home football game. And yeah, yeah. the very first one I went to my freshman year, in fact the, the whole school went to these I mean it was like it was like instead of going Yeah, to it was fit- like mandatory assignment and you sat with your who did, did you sit by class? Yes. Yeah, see we sat by class and then the band was in a separate right. section. So. so I'd never been to one of these before and it was just it was mind boggling. You know, it's like I think our school had about two thousand students. Okay. And they were all Good size jammed school. in the gym and they're just they're just the band is there playing music, they're playing Modern music, uh, you know, over the intercoms, over the PA. The cheerleaders are there. The, the football coach, oh, what was his name? Some like Howard Minkinoff would be like, <laughs> "We're gonna go play a game tonight, and you be there. You be there. You, you sitting right there. You be there." And I, I remembered it for years. I can still see him doing that, pointing around the venue. And then, funny, two thirds of the way through. They're like, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the dancing squad for the Countryside Cougars, our very own Cougarettes. Uh, and the lights go out. The main event. The lights go out. And they start pumping on this music. And it's Devo, Girl You Want. Oh. And, and I don't think I'd ever heard the song at this point in my life. You know? And yeah. It's, but it's the whole cra- – everyone's going nuts. And then in run these girls all dressed as punk rockers like – Really, um, I don't want to use the word slutty punk rockers, but that just kind of... <laughs> but you just did. <laughs> Let's just say they're very provocatively dressed punk rockers. Mm. And uh, so Shocking. they did this borderline uh, gentleman's club routine to Girl You Want. And let's just say Monday at school, the Cougarettes were no more. Really? Yeah. <sighs> Disbanded. Man, one one misstep, one too many bear midriffs, and you know, you know, you're headed <laughs> for the pleasure was, burn. I'm sure. I'm sure. If I could go back, if I could take the aforementioned or yet to be mentioned in the show podcast time machine and go back and witness that performance again, I'm sure I'm remembering it completely different than it was. <laughs> yeah, you're like, what's the big deal? <laughs> they're wearing skirts, so that means they're, they're provocative. <laughs> I, but my recollection at the time your, was... Your reptilian brain yeah. was like, this good. Oh, it was like, oh. it's, it's like we were... It we were, is the girl <laughs> I want. They speak truth. <laughs> It's like we were. It's like we were mainlining hormones into our brain. I don't know why your lizard brain has a Russian accent. I can't <laughs> explain that, but apparently it that's does. That's just the way it is. But anyway, that's that's what I remember of girl. That's you a great story. And every time I, I hear, love it. Every time I hear it, I think about the poor cougarettes. Oh, and um, I love the fact that the girl you want sank the cougarettes. <laughs> I, I hope that's. I, I hope that story is at least seventy five percent true. I, I know cougarettes. I know. We know you listen, cougarettes. <laughs> right in. Let us know. They don't. We need to know. Sadly, we they, need to know. They don't. Someone else who doesn't listen in is the artist who gives us our second album. But this is a song we all remember. Don't waste your money on a new set of speakers. You get more mileage from a cheap pair of sneakers. Licks face, new wave, dance crazy. Anyways, it's still rocking old to me. It's still rock and roll to me by Billy Joel off of Glass Houses. I remember buying this album 
based on the only criteria I knew at the time, which was, does it have a cool album cover? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, hmm, that looks interesting. So, so I bought it, and I took it home, and I played it, and it was amazing. In 1980, remember, Brad and I are only 13 years old. So it's not like you know he and I have been hitting the clubs in New York City and listening to to Billy Joel, you know, the balladeer play all his songs off The Stranger at nightclubs in Long Island. This was the first time you and I probably really heard Billy Joel. Yeah. Glass Houses is the seventh album, which is hard to believe in itself. In 1980, he's already got seven albums out. And it features his first number one hit, which is, it's still rock and roll to me. The album itself was a juggernaut. It topped the charts for six weeks. Um, He would go on and win a Grammy for this. I think what people forget about this album is it changes his career a lot. He closes out the 70s with two of his best-selling albums to date, The Stranger, which is fantastic, and I owned it eventually. I think I owned at one point every Billy Joel album and and 52nd Street. But he had this reputation as being like this sensitive singer-songwriter. Yeah, it's kind of the singer-songwriter era for him and for so many other people as well. I mean, that was big. Which which is great for playing like a club of a couple hundred people, but maybe not so great when you're trying to fill, you know, Nassau Coliseum. Yeah. So here's what Billy Joel tells Playboy magazine in 1982, because I just whipped out my copy that I have here. As one does. (laughs) Was that the one that featured the Cougarettes as well, Steve? Yes. It tells the whole sad story. So here's what Billy Joel tells Playboy. Quote, it's a definite temptation to repeat a successful formula, but I've never done the same thing twice. I don't care what anyone says. After Stranger, I could have done Son of a Stranger, but I've never done that. To keep me interested, there always has to be something new, something different. Well, that's what we got. Yeah, big time. Glass Houses had five big hits. All on side one. You may be right. Sometimes a fantasy. Uh, don't ask me why. It's still rock and roll to me. And, and my personal favorite, All for Lena, which I think we played in the last podcast. I don't know to sneak that in there. <laughs> because it turns out that John Lennon was a huge Billy Joel fan. For my deep cut, I'm going to go with this track. It's called Sleeping with the Television On. Well, I've been watching you all so night, Diane. Nobody's found a way behind your defenses. Now, Brad, this wasn't released as a single, but it should have been. It begins with the final notes of the national anthem, uh, as was the case in the time when you're, before your TV went <laughs> Yeah, off. remember, kids, when the stations went off the air overnight? Mm-hmm. Yes. By kids, it means 50-year-old adults. But after that, it becomes as close to pop perfection as it gets. And in the lyrics, which I couldn't have possibly understood when I was 13 years old, hints about what happens if you don't take a chance on love. You end mm. up sleeping with the television on. It's short. It's fun. It sort of has a feel of Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson, but it's Billy Joel. Back to the cover of the album, the house that Billy Joel is throwing a stone at, that's the actual house he was living in at the time. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. I just figured he like found some big glass-fronted house, like, let's do this. Oh. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is old school. We, they didn't have that much uh, time. Uh, in that same Playboy interview, he said... It was, I'm going to throw a rock at the image people have of me as this mellow balladeer. 
We've been doing rock and roll before, but there happened to be more of it on this record. The old thing about people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. I don't believe it. I think, why not? Take chances. I really wanted to throw a rock at my own house, unquote. Uh, that's kind of a weird application of the metaphor. I mean, it's fine, yeah. Mr. Joel. You do you, do you but uh, I don't think throwing stones in glass houses has anything to do with taking chances. I know. Don't, 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 don't overthink it. Joel. I know. Don't overthink it. Don't fight it. with Billy Joel. He's got a rock in his hand. Don't think. Just throw. Yeah. <laughs> Can only what hurt got, the crowd. Okay. This, this is a first, Ladies Nation. This is a first. I'm going to talk about... Dolly Parton and her album Nine to Five and Odd Jobs. Stumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from nine to five. We don't talk much about country music on this show, Steve. I've been known to call it the music of my oppressors. But it's definitely part of the decade. This is a concept album that Dolly Parton put out about working. That's the title. I'm not 100% on board that just having common theme is enough to call it a concept album. I might just be being a snob there. Or maybe I'm just... Isn't, isn't by definition, then every country album a concept album? Uh, yeah. It, that's kind of where I was going with that. I don't yes. mean to be a dick. I mean, I'm I know. To be a yes, dick. We're being dicks. I'm sorry. It's just, I'm not sure that it's... The concept album, I think it's a pretty good album. Whatever you want to call it, Dolly Parton's voice is, was, continues to be just fantastic. You're not going to get a bunch of flashy guitar solos or, you know, cool drum fills, that kind of stuff. The main event here is Dolly Parton, and, and she's up for it. You know, she she delivers. You talk about that was um, Billy Joel's seventh studio album. This is Dolly Parton's 23rd solo release. Wow. <laughs> And her second album of 1980. What? Yeah. She released Dolly, Dolly, Dolly in April 1980. This followed in November. Look, country artists like to do covers as well as anybody else. Probably more so. It's super common for country music artists to cover each other's stuff. This album is no different. It has versions of Woody Guthrie, Mel Tillis, and Merle Travis songs. In addition to it... reworking of house of the rising sun which i'm not sure i'm totally on board with but i see where she was going it's considered for the time an understated pop country album but i think it's just a straight up pop country album there's a lot of string parts and kind of production value that you don't hear in what you think of as kind of straight ahead you know pure if you will country but again i think it suits dolly parton's voice so let me talk a little bit about 9 to 5. The single, you know it, you love it, or you don't, if you don't, fine. Uh, the single was released before the movie came out, and I'm sure that they kind of buoyed each other's success, but this song went to number one on both country and the Hot 100 charts in early 1981. Although it's worth noting that country doesn't seem to travel real well in this case because it only made it to 47 in the U.K., But this made Dolly Parton only the second woman at the time to top both these charts with the same song. The first was in 1968. You got any guesses on who that was, Steve? Um, If you get this, I'm going to be shocked. I mean, mean, I'm tempted to say Olivia Newton-John, but she's not old enough. Right. So it's not Anne Murray, is it? (sighs) That's a really good guess, but no, it's not. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm not done guessing. Oh, okay. Is it... it, um, Sissy Spacek? Also a really good guess. 
but no. Okay, I, gi- I give up. It's Who is it? Jeannie C. Riley with the Harper Valley PTA. Okay. And yeah, you know I, I like that, that song because it tells a story. <laughs> I like songs to tell stories. Story time. Alvin and the Chipmunks covered this song on their 1982 album, The Chipmunks Go Hollywood. Uh, and more recently, the kids these days heard it when they saw Deadpool 2. Uh, there's a scene where he takes care of a room full of Hong Kong triad it, yeah. guys. They never yep, saw it yep. coming. They never saw it coming. <laughs> it's right in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. I remember it. I'm not totally stuck in the 80s. I have some modern day cred. <laughs> you have some touches here and there. Yeah, I got a record player downstairs and everything. No. <laughs> Jump back. Uh, let's go to a deeper cut. The deeper cut I chose, there's actually some good stuff on here, but I really like uh, her version of Detroit City. doesn't sound anything like the kiss version uh, no there's a word missing <laughs> in the middle there it's not detroit rock city they haven't they haven't figured out how to rock yet so detroit city was written by danny dylan mel tillis who we all remember from his appearances in cannibal run one and two a lot of people recorded this sometimes it's detroit city and sometimes it's known as i want to go home uh, the best known version is probably Bobby Bear's, uh, only because he won a Grammy for Best Country and Western Recording with his version in 1963. And, and I think it has kind of a Sloop John B feel to it. I felt a little cheated because I listened to the album and I thought, this kind of is Sloop John B-E. And then I go to Wikipedia and it's like, some people say this sounds like Sloop John B. I'm like, oh, I thought I had original thought for once in my life. Nope. Uh, I know. But it does kind of lyrically that I want to go home, obviously some common things there. And and melodically, it just kind of has a sound to it. Uh, I like that version. One last thing I will say before we completely break the transmission on this podcast with our next gear shift. Did you see the Dolly Parton segment on SNL News last night? No. It's no, fun. I haven't watched it it's, yet. It's funny. It's funny. I'll find a link and put it in the show notes. Excellent. Speaking of help... I needed a lot of help on this next one. So I consulted uh, one of our favorite uh, metal fans among the podcast nation, uh, Dave Augie August. And he insisted that among all the great metal albums of 1980, this is the one we had to talk about. So here we go. Buckle up, Buttercup. This is obviously British Steel by Judas Priest, and I will absolutely acknowledge that 1980 was huge for metal and rock in general. It's considered the start of the second British invasion. You have debut albums by Iron Maiden and Def Leppard. You have Back in Black. You have Ace of Spades by Motorhead, Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath. And speaking of Sabbath, we also have Blizzard of Oz by Ozzy Osbourne. Any one of these would have been great albums to talk about for the show. Ain't nobody got time for that. We don't. I don't have the correct DNA makeup in my body to talk about more than one metal album at a time. So 
British Steel's Give Me the One We Pick. And again, I take you to the iconic album cover of a of a human hand gripping. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. A, uh, a razor blade, which makes it one of, I think, three albums I was not allowed to buy from my parents. Oh, yeah? Objected to. The other one was the uh, Scorpions where the forks oh, were. the forks and the eyes. Yeah. That stuff may have sold for some families, but not the Spears household. That was like, I, I picked it up and showed it to my mom. She's like, nope. Yeah, that's, so that'd day. be a no for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, it was the band's sixth album, Breaking the Law, as we just heard. That was the big hit. But uh, Living After Midnight was huge as well. The The band broke new ground with these, with these albums, and it was thanks to analog sampling. Everything from the breaking of milk jugs, and that's the sound of the breaking glass you hear in Breaking the Law, to uh, taking silverware drawers and slamming them shut. I mean, stuff that uh, actually Depeche Mode would sort of steal <laughs> later on. Bastards. For the, well, for, just, uh, as we've just learned, there are no original ideas. So Yes, or podcasts for that matter. Um, but there's also a rhythm to the songs in this album that maybe metal fans hadn't heard before. And here's why. In 1979, while Judas Priest was opening for ACDC, they couldn't ignore how the crowd was reacting to all of ACDC's big anthems, you know, like the fist pumping and just the undulating madness of it all. So when they hit the recording studio this time, they wanted to kind of find a sound that would get the crowd in a similar state of, you know, zen, ecstasy, (laughs) sadness. I don't think zen was probably on their list, but okay. I know. Zen's just what I'm trying to use right now to get through the show right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, please. Please don't bungle the show. Please don't make us have to record this thing twice. <sighs> Rob Halford, the, the lead singer of Juice Priest, in 2010, he was asked to look back on that album and and by uh, Goldmine Magazine, uh, which I do not subscribe to. What? But he said, quote, as most people are aware, we were in and out of the studio in less than a month. That's true. Good grief. Uh, we were just very excited about our growth and the tremendous support of the label at the time. We were just doing what we had to do, and we because we really didn't have that much time to think and ponder and plan what songs we were going to try to create, it just was a very unique record, unquote. Yeah. So this is a pressure makes diamonds kind of situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't I think, just throw. a buttload of diamonds for you. But uh, Ew. You wanna, <laughs> if you want to, if you want a deeper cut, Here's the third track on the album called Metal Gods. Brad, I know you're wanting to know the deep, dark back secret of this song, and so I'll tell you. Very much so. Yes, I'm not please really do. Tell you all that much. Uh, the song is rumored to have been written to give the band a nickname, and while Metal Gods may not have stuck, <laughs> you can't as the give nickname, yourself nicknames. No, it doesn't work that I didn't way. Give myself, well, you sort of gave yourself Brad in L.A. Well, okay, but that's not a nickname. That's just a. It's my actual <laughs> name with a location. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it doesn't necessarily stick with the band, but it does apply to Rob Halford, who uh, is known by most of the band's fans as 
Metal God. Mm. Oh, and by the way, that that album cover that Mom probably still wouldn't let me own. Mm-hmm. I might get a copy just to take a picture and show her. Uh, just you just poke that, and poke, don't you? <laughs> for the, the the photographer used an oversized prop of a razor blade to create the look. Um, uh, according to legend, the uh, the gigantic razor blade was later stolen from the photographer's house, never to be seen again. He sold it. He sold it. Come on. <laughs> I would think so. I would. I'll probably download this album and listen to it a little bit more. You know, give it a real chance. Nice. You know, we'll see. You know, I, put it on while, you, while you light the Yule log and have the Christmas <laughs> tree on. You know. I have the Christmas tree still downstairs with still no ornaments on it. So what? I don't know. Spears, come on. It's just – I don't even turn it on every night. It's just a big shrubbery. Uh, wait wait a minute. Up wait a minute. Little, Two shows ago now, you were all like, oh, yeah, I put it up. It's up. I love having it. It's lit. And you're not even turning it on. You don't have ornaments on it? Nope, just sitting down there. Kind of weird Grinch are you? Well, I just we didn't get to, we didn't get to it when the future wife was here last time. Mm, okay, okay, well I'll so, allow it, but I want to see a picture of it fully by decorated. The, by, by the time that this show makes it online, no, it still won't be lit. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we have time for one Ooh, last yeah. album. Yeah, come on. This is going to be a one that I think a lot of people are going to recognize, but they're not going to. The story behind it is kind of interesting. So. Here we go. Cue the one song that's burned into the back of our brains like uh, as if it were sent down from the sun in a rainy day. <laughs> Whatever the f*** that means. <laughs> hit me with your best shot. Why don't you hit me with your best shot? Hit me with your best shot. Fire away. Hit me with your best shot. So obviously we're talking about Pat Benatar. The album, of course, most people know it's Crimes of Passion, yeah. right? I, you I mean, know, I always thought this, when I saw this on the list, I'm like, that can't be right. That has to be like a 1982 release, but, you know, no. Brad in L.A., you're an idiot. 1980 <laughs> all the way. It was their second album, and it was a huge hit. It got to number two on the, on the, on the charts, sat there forever because the album we talked about in our last podcast was blocking it. Yeah. Uh, D- John Lennon's Double Fantasy. Double Fantasy, chart blocker. No need for a bleep there. Like ACDC, like some of these other albums from 1980, full, full of hits that, I mean, are kind of, you know, part of the basic playlist of the 80s. Yeah. So it has... Do you like hits? Listen to this lineup. (laughs) Yeah. Hit me with your best shot. You better run. Treat me right. Hell's for children. All on Crimes of Passion. You would think that with this kind of performance and with this number of hits, that the critics must have been thrilled... They were not. Uh, the The reviews on this album were mixed. Some of them were brutal. Really? <laughs> Rolling Stone, which granted, if they're going to do something, they're going to do it all the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not a halfway kind of organization, are they? Right. They're not going to say, hey, you know, it's an okay album. Maybe <laughs> we'll do it one time and then put it on the show. Rolling Stone said, quote, Lacking both subtlety and playfulness, Benatar delivers the brunt of Crimes of Passion's material, most of it leaden reworkings of hard rock cliches, with a shrill seriousness that rarely varies. She's at her most carnist in Hell is for Children, an indictment of child abuse that's as grotesque as it is well-meaning. You know, there are a lot of problems here, Steve. Let's start at the beginning. 
lacking both subtlety and playfulness. In other words, for Pat Benatar to be successful in Rolling Stone's eyes, she needs to be subtle and playful. And now she's she has a shrill seriousness. Now, if a if all male rock band sang the same song over and over again, then that would be okay. But if a female artist does it, oh no, they're they're trying to be too serious and not playful enough for me. You know what, Rolling I, Stone, <laughs> stuff it. I'm glad I canceled my subscription. You know what, Brad, stow it. Because as it turns out, Pat Benatar wasn't happy with it either. I'm sure she didn't like them saying those things, regardless no, of whether she was happy or no. not. No, she wasn't happy with the album. Uh, what does she know? In a, ni- <laughs> in a 1991 interview with Music Connection, Pat Benatar said, "Quote: People loved it, but I just want to scream when people say that because it was just a bunch of material that didn't work for me, and I wasn't happy with it. People always say it's my best album, and I'm thinking to myself, shit." You don't know how good I could have sung on that record. Okay, okay. Unquote. now I get to be mad at her, too. Okay, that's fine, but you're not happy with how you sang on your own record and then it went out? Like, what, did they tape over your voice after you finished singing the one version for something? Come on. Oh, don't be so naive. Uh, well, I, I'm being, okay, I'm being a little, I will, I will admit to being, you know, I understand there are other forces than when you're happy with something, but to bitch about, oh, I'm not happy with the way I sang on that? and people like it and you're uh, come on come on pat so for brad so, the only are, thing i'm did happy you cash about the check let me ask when people bought the album did you cash the check okay sit down brad the only thing i'm happy about in this podcast so far is how i just read that rolling stone quote so anyway i like the album i owned it at the time <laughs> what uh, do you know if, pat benatar if, says you're a moron God, come on Oh, oh I'm, famous I'm wound woman up calls now. me a moron. News at eleven. I'm wound up now. <laughs> you are. I know. I'm going to have to walk you down. Anyway, if you want a deep cut, here it is. It's a cover of Kate Bush's uh, "Wuthering Heights." you'll be happy to know that even Rolling Stone applauded this, calling it, quote, a glimpse of her real potential. Oh, God, that's just so patronizing. So, so patronizing. Ugh, it is a good cover. <laughs> it is a great cover. Are you kidding me? And I'm sure, when I, I'm sure when I played this back in the day, I'm sure I never listened to that song. I'm sure I, I sat there and dutifully listened to all the hits, and then I just you know turned it <laughs> off, and then went and found <laughs> went and found my copy of something else and played it instead. But uh, anyway, regardless of Brad's thoughts or Pat's thoughts or the Rolling Stone review, she won her first Grammy for this, and "Crimes of Passion" remains her biggest selling career album ever. <laughs> you know what? Did she accept the award? That's all I want to know. Here's what I want to know: Are you going to accept the? Seggies? <laughs> ah, 
it's time for I Want My Mystery TV theme song. I'm trying to simplify my introductions here and just kind of introduce them as is instead of trying to label them. Hmm. Interesting. How am I doing? Uh, so far, so good. I'll let you know tomorrow when I edit it. <laughs> so here's the deal. We'll play a snippet from a TV theme song from the 80s. If you get it right, you're entered into the drawing for some swag. Most likely the <clears throat> postal-friendly bottle opener. Ooh. Oh, that sounded good. Yeah, that's nice. That was like, like might, let's save that. That's like save FM that radio voice, yeah. Steve. You're listening to Larry. Larry in the afternoons. Tonight, postal friendly bottle openers. Yep, see, I didn't do it right that time. Mm. Anyway, anyway, the last time we did this, Seggy, here was the mystery clip. That's Jennifer slept here. Hello. It's me. And only you can see me. I just saw the most beautiful ghost in the world. She slept here. I just saw the most outrageous kind of a girl. Dude, you're making this up. No, I I told you before. I do a Google for short-lived 80s TV shows. And then I, I go through and I think, okay, we've done this, done this, done this. Jennifer slept here? Never heard of it. Turns out. It ran for one season on NBC from 1983 to 1984. Nice. It starred Ann okay. the, the ever-lovely Ann Jillian, as a once-popular movie actress named Jennifer, spoiler alert, uh. who is killed when chasing an ice cream truck <laughs> near her L.A. home. <laughs> that's, the, that's the show I want to see. 20 years later, a family from New York moves in, led by a dad who once handled Jennifer's you know, post-death affairs. And Jennifer reappears as a ghost who only the young son can see. And she's there to guide him through oh life and give his wisdom. This is another one of those. This pitch meeting was accompanied by mountains of blow. <laughs> it doesn't make. Oh, wow. Wow. The 80s. They were something special, Steve. They were something special. They were for TV. I, mean, there was, I, I, I never saw it. You know, so 83, 84. I would have been. We were we were, we were sixteen at that time. Yeah, maybe. that was so the junior, junior year of high school. Yeah, yeah. So we any excuse to get in the car and go somewhere. Yeah, yeah. You need a, uh, do you need a gallon of milk? I'm going to drive twenty miles to the next town to get it for you. We got five gallons of milk in the fridge, Steve. Well, you know, can't be. Might can't have be cocoa too pebbles tomorrow. You know, there might be a so. French toast incident coming up. Yeah, I never. I don't think my my family ever made that. Really, they made banana pancakes like they were going hmm. out of style. Interesting. I can't eat them to this day. Anyway, we had some winners, right? We did. Winners this week include Peter Ryan, Chris Cooling of Forgotten TV, Jeremy and St. Pete, Deborah RX Gator Phillips, and Dave Dirt, who writes, I just saw the most beautiful girl in the world, and she slept here. This week's TV <laughs> theme is from the 1983 NBC show Jennifer Slept Here. I was only 10 when this came out, and I friggin' loved it. I always remembered one specific episode with the star, or at least the kid playing opposite Angelian, having the hots for a pair of twins. 
I also had the hots for that same pair of twins. I kept talking about them to my best friend at his house that weekend after seeing the episode. For decades, I wondered if I would still go gaga over the twins if I saw them now. I finally tracked down that particular episode on YouTube about a year or so ago, and the answer was a resounding no. Apparently, when I was 10, I had a thing for trashy blonde chicks. (laughs) Well, you know, Dave, we live and we learn. Anyway, the show held up remarkably well. Wait, no, scratch that. It didn't hold up at all. But hey, that theme song. Oh, wait, no, that's not that great either. What the hell are we thinking? Still stuck in the 80s, Dave Dirt. I'm going to have to check it out. I I was going to try to watch a show earlier to the MTV just to kind of, but I didn't have to now because Dave Dirt did it. It's been a while. Let's find out who won uh, Postal Friendly Bottle Opener. Okay. And looks like it's going to land on Deborah RX Gator. You are this week's winner. So send us a postal address and we will send you some swag. In the meantime, pay attention. Here's this week's mystery TV theme song. If you know it, email us at podcast at SITDs.com and tune in soon to find out if you are a winner. We'll be right back after this short commercial break. I'm Dick Clark with a music bonus from the Columbia Record and Tape Club. Look for the gold box. Hold it, hold it. Uh, I'm Dick Clark with a double music bonus. Not just one gold box, but two. Two? Why didn't they tell me? (laughs) Well, I'm telling you now. You'll also get more top albums worth $80 at suggested retail prices, all for just a penny when you join. All this music is right here in the double gold box ad. Choose from over 400 albums. And where you saw one gold box in the coupon, you'll now see double. Two gold boxes. Fill them both in and get two bonus albums along with the other albums of your choice for just a penny. You'll get superstars like Pat Benatar, Billy Joel, Queen, the top names and hottest albums in the business. So look for the Columbia Record and Tape Club Gold Box. Double gold box ad in your Sunday newspaper. You know, Dick, they really should have told me. And we're back. We have just a few minutes left. I thought uh, we it's been a while since we've thanked our patrons. We've got a few new ones this week, right, Brad? We do, since the last time we thanked patrons. Yeah. Yes, we do, Steve. Uh, this week, we'd like to thank Shan Nichols, Anne McNally, James Harrington, and David Bernhardt for joining us as patrons. We really appreciate it. It is just startling to me that anyone would send us money for this shlock, this schlock, but we really appreciate it. No, it, it seriously. There are we we put it towards our expenses. I mean the 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 microphone that Brad's obviously going to have to replace at the end of this show. Man, <laughs> I know what's going on with that. It's dying. I feel like I'm talking to someone from the 1940s every five seconds. Come in, Tokyo, um, Tokyo, come in. <laughs> it's like the episode of we did that whole episode on the the final countdown where the aircraft carrier goes back to World War II. Anyway, um, we're close to Christmas. We're close to the holidays. I hope everyone's plan to stay safe um i hope you go back and take a look at some of these albums from 1980 that we gave a, a shout out to right before we switched the calendar and next year we'll be talking about albums from 1981 and hopefully we won't wait until december to talk about it <laughs> but until that happens uh brad and i will remain here hopelessly stuck in the 80s all night long all night long we'll just be standing here because somebody might do Stuck in the 80s is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music, and thanks for listening. Oh, 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 o
television on.